the idea of, of creating deep work means that we need to constantly be looking for moments where we're lost and uncomfortable. And if we aren't doing that as educators, we don't recognize what that looks like for students. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry. Today, we're speaking with a very good friend and colleague of mine, Kwaku Anning. Kwaku is the director of the Center of Innovation and Entrepreneurial Thinking at the San Diego Jewish Academy. He's had the privilege to work in various roles across the last two decades within public, private, and charter education. As an educator, professional wanderer and wanderer, connector and advocate for students, Kwaku is always looking to connect the dots between education, tech, art, agency, and the stuff that he is yet to understand. Don't be fooled though, he actually knows quite a lot. He's a global leader in STEAM and project-based learning, particularly using robotics, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, and virtual reality. We were very lucky to meet at the Stanford D School for a residency in the pre-COVID world. Kwaku, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast today. Good evening. Good morning. Um, how are you doing? <laughs> Fantastic to have you, as it always is, to have a conversation. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to ours today. You know, we could talk about many things, uh, you and I. I want to ask this question to begin. What is the big idea that you've been focusing on or that's been lighting you up recently through all the different roles that you play in education? So the irony of this and also being on your podcast, it's an idea that you gave me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a huge setup here. I know I'm not, I'm not taking any credit, um, but it's this concept of deep work. And so, um, you know, to, you know, pull back the curtain, you and I talk very frequently and just uh, like a, a week ago, it feels like I was talking to you and I was saying, hey, we didn't talk in a while. I get a lot of inspiration from you. And you were, you were talking, it, like whenever we meet or meet on the phone or Zoom or whatever, um, we'll talk about what we're reading, what we're working on. And you introduced this concept of deep work versus busy work. The idea of things that you are working on that ask bigger questions that um, lead to breakthroughs, but also have uh, a, tremendous amount, a, tremendous, a tremendous amount or considerably more productive struggle involved mm -hmm. with them. You know? And so the difference between uh, clearing out your inbox yeah. to sort of having a breakthrough on how you would share a concept or a process with someone. And that, it, that has been, that, that idea has been hounding me since we spoke, you know, like the synchronicity of it, once you hear it and then you see it everywhere. Yeah. And um, even the concept of, of uh, and we're, we're going to dig into this, but what starts out is deep work, but then becomes busy work because yeah. you've you formed the process around it. And so you can fool yourself into thinking that you are actually engaging in a deep, meaningful way, but really you're just taking your process and repeating it across different mediums. Mm. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack in that, <laughs> Quackle. And and of course, I mean, my shout out is to Cal Newport, who wrote the book Deep Work. Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, I think is a beautiful articulation of what we're talking about. And Range, you know, by David yes. Epstein, which is another book that you and I have both have enjoyed. You know, this idea of how do you master difficult things? And of course, this is what we are 
increasingly trying to focus our efforts on in schools as yeah. just as in workplaces because you know the surface level learning or work or the lower levels of the bloom taxonomy you know ultimately you know we're seeing exponential tech just automating that that stuff already right that's why we see the the emerging future of work as being you know trying to master the non-routine aspects uh and that's that is going to take pretty focused attention yeah um, and so of course there's the whole debate at the moment around the social dilemma and the idea of social media and, and the tools that have been created that aren't exclusively just tools because they effectively are trying to you know commercialize our ability to be influenced through advertising and yeah and so and that's a challenge of course when we think about young people and young people being exposed now you know the, to the incredible power of technology and I, I definitely want you to speak to some of the work that you're doing with vr and ar and looking at the the intersection with empathy and other work but mm -hmm. also of course the challenges that come with us being just immersed in this new world of technology well it, i mean i think uh the the power and the potential and the problems are all sort of enormous and there. So there's the, the initial concept of feeling that you have an aptitude or that you are really, really good with technology because you are good with the busy work that technology creates Interesting. versus um, I can take a piece of technology or hardware or software, or even a process, and do something that is original and actually touches people or inspires people in a way that it hasn't been done before. And I know that feels like a high bar, but with all of this access, shouldn't we be reaching for bars that high? Mm. You know, we we literally have you know built into our emails uh, AI systems that will automatically spell check or guess the phrasing that we want to be using or, or catching mistakes before we make them. And so uh, the idea of just sort of creating a life where all this simplicity, and this is another concept that you and I dug into, um, I think last weekend, creating a life where we have all of these things automated for us and that are simplified for us, we have the choice of being like, all right, great. Well, there's less for me to do. Or, oh, great. Now that all of that busy work is taken care of and, and it's not taking up room it's not a cognitive drain on me i i know that all these things are there i can dig deeper into what i want what it is i want to be doing and so if you if you were to take that into the music world um when you look at uh sergeant pepper's lonely heart club band that was recorded on four tracks really three and so the idea you had four tracks you uh -huh. record each instrument on three of those tracks, you have to commit to those ideas. Those are perfect. You cannot go back and change them. Yeah. You dump it onto the fourth track, and then you have three more tracks to work with. But you're, what you put on that fourth track, everything's set. You yeah. cannot go back and change that. And now, if you look at what, what uh, you know, like a 16-year-old could do with their phone, they have <laughs> 10, to, 10 to 12 tracks where they could build something out. Um, and there's something to be said for having those design constraints mm. to force you not only to make decisions, but to also um, to commit to ideas and follow through with them as opposed to like, oh, well, I can always go back and change that or we can always go back and fix that part. So, you know, there are those concepts with technology. If we push that, if we push that, that sort of construct into how we look at schools, mm. so much for us can be automated 
So how are we hacking that? How are we abusing that? How are we being creative with that? As opposed to, oh, this just saves me time. And, you know, coming full circle to a lot of the things that you and I talk about and, and something that I, I mentioned at work the other day, you cannot automate um, humanity. And that is, the, that is the, like, the greatest skill that we have the privilege and the ability to teach kids that we interact with. Our brains are the, are the factors that are, they're changing, but they're changing at the slowest rate. The, Moore's law doesn't factor into our brains. And so if we're bringing that level of humanity, empathy, and concern and mindfulness to how we use these tools, then I'm okay with the automation and with all these other things because the, the core of what is important to us, to what we bring to this world uh, with the technology is our humanity. And that's what I think we really need to be pushing on with students. Wow, that's beautifully put, Kwaku. Uh, can you take us through a couple of examples? I mean... Learning looks different depending on where you are and when you are and with who, who, who we are, you know. Uh, but there are some universals. You know, where do you, where do you see technology being used in, in a really humane way to kind of elevate or expand the process of learning, deepen perhaps, if we're talking about depth, deep work, deep learning in particular, right. uh, as opposed to where it's been introduced, well-intentioned perhaps, but frankly hasn't, hasn't, transformed the learning process in any way. In fact, it's created additional distractions that are, that are preventing all of us from diving into you know, the, the truly deep work and deep learning that is required for this digital future in which we can become more human. That, okay. And so I'm gonna catch, I'm probably gonna catch some, some crap about this on Twitter and stuff. I'm gonna start with the bad and end with the good. Okay. I do not think that esports is bringing, <laughs> I'm just going to say this, and I know it's horrible because I know a lot of people love esports. Yeah. I do not think that what esports brings to education is um, a, uh, an expanded, borderline even healthy use of technology mixed with school. What esports does, and I, I play video games myself, it is an organized way to play video games, which has now turned into a business thanks to YouTube and, and, you know, and all these hardware manufacturers, mm -hmm. which is great, which is fantastic. And because it's a business where people can make a lot of money, now colleges, at least in the U.S., you can tell me about Australia, are sure. literally offering scholarships for kids wow. who play sports. So then that trickles down into high schools where the high schools are like, all right, well, this is now considered a sport, so we need to have this in our schools. I, it's it's great. I would do this every weekend or every day after school with my friends when I was younger. Do I think that someone who's in, who is really into esports has um, is taking the best of what we have available to us now, which is immense, mm. and doing something amazing with it, inspiring with it, um, balancing or bringing their humanity to it? No, not really. Now the flip side of it are all of the amazing storytelling tools that are blatant or, or inadvertently uh, being used for students to share their narratives. And so that is happening with augmented reality and virtual reality with companies. And I'll even say, because these are companies I, I believe in. Uh, there's this company called Zoe XR, um, where it, it literally empowers kids to create VR content in headsets. 
Wow. Typically, if you're creating VR, you're creating in a 2D setting, and then you put on the headset and you're immersed. You're like, wait a minute, I'm standing in the middle of a cow. I need to take the headset off. I need to move the starting point. You're doing it in the headset, and it allows you to pull from images. It allows you to create your own um, assets and bring it in. So it really allows students to create their own narratives and give and gives them the power to share that with other people, create that experience for other people. Um, a company you and I were talking about recently, this company, Curious, which is out of your homeland, they're doing the same thing with 360 video. Um, cool. They're like Merge Cube, Codespaces, all these companies are doing things where kids have the power to create their content. And I am definitely, I definitely lean towards the side of uh, constructivist education and that when kids can build artifacts of their learning, not only do they understand what they're learning deeper, but you're mm. getting a sense of them and if we're looking at it from an expanded view, it allows them to create content that's part of this bigger media canon. And so if you trace this back to, you can go back to the Bible, you can go back to the printing press, you can go to, you can go to TV, you can go to the early internet. Each version of this had a ton of content that was created not by media companies, but by the masses, which did an amazing job of documenting where society was at that mm. point. And that is happening now. We're just on the cusp of it, cusp of it with things of, of an immersive tech um, sort of slant, whether it's AI or AR, VR, any, any of the A's and V's. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of, <laughs> of creating a space where students, and, and this is the important part, all students, nice. all students have the ability and the power to create their narratives. We see, and I know I keep uh, like using music as an example because I'm a, I'm a former music teacher. You're never really a former musician, but you know, cause it's just always in, you're always ready to go play the game. Exactly. You know? yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but if you, if you, if you wanted to step away from the larger analogies of media and you just wanted to look at music, uh, what Beethoven sounds like, what little Richard sounds like, what the Beatles sound like, what the Rolling Stones sound like, Neil Young, um, uh, Curtis Blow, Run DMC, all these different acts with what they're doing, they're taking these snapshots and, and or these Polaroids even and, mm. and, and creating this space for us to really be able to go back and connect with what life was like at that point. And that, I think, ties into the humanity, students being able to tell their stories. Wow. I, I want to really hear more from you about this idea uh, of kind of consumption versus creation. Because of mm. course we, we have in a lot of the learning models that we use in our schools, but just, but frankly, also in, in the workforce, right? The idea of, you know, what kind of value or contribution are you making to your organization or more broadly to society? You know, there's that whole piece here around social justice and, right. and equity. And you've brought that up in some ways by saying all learners, all as learners. a whole, yeah. like being able to create and tell their own stories, you know? And so, you know, there's a, there's a piece around agency in that as well. Uh, but I'd love us to talk a bit about creation versus consumption. Cause I think in what yeah. you've described, you know, with all the amazing technology, you know, and you and I can go and watch phenomenal things and consume, mm -hmm. but there is something around the value of a tool when it, when it quite literally redefines a learning experience where we can use it to create something that wasn't there before, for right. example, and all good technologies when used well, enable that to be the case. Um, yeah. So, you know, as opposed to us being kind of addicted to our technologies or just consuming them, 
so that we can, you know, and that's a process of learning, sure, remembering and synthesizing and understanding. But, you know, where, what, what about that creation piece? And how do, is there a balance? Like, can we definitively say, well, it's for 50% this or 50% this? Or is there a sequencing piece to this? Like, what's your, what's your perspective on creation versus consumption? Um, I think that, um, I think the consumption and this, I think this goes back to like our, you know, like the good work versus the busy work. Yeah. The, uh, the consumption piece, especially now during a pandemic is something that we do to sort of balance ourselves out. It's almost the thing that we do to turn our brains off from all the things that are concerning us. And if it wasn't a consumption, if it wasn't a pandemic right now, prior to this, it's not like all of a sudden everyone's gotten into social media. Like I know plenty of people who do this. I try not to, but I'll do it in the morning. I'll wake up. And instead of looking at the calendar or even starting on whatever my morning routine is, mm. I will be like, oh, I'll spend five minutes on Instagram. And that five minutes quickly turns into 30. You know, and occasionally I'll see something that's interesting and maybe I'll send it to you or send it to like one of my other friends and be like, hey, have you seen this article? Like, or have you seen this, this interesting thing that they're doing with this tool? But that consumption piece, it is this way of occupying ourselves without actually the commitment of contributing anything. And the, you know, like the concept we were talking about before about bringing our humanity to things, you don't have to bring your humanity to reading an Instagram feed. And I'm not going to just pick on Instagram because the flip side of it, uh, I think I'm going on two years ago, I did a project at my job with our history teacher. I don't know if I told you about this, where um, she, and we didn't know what we were going to use. We ended up using Instagram, but she was she, whenever I, I talk with teachers, I always say to them, hey, tell me what is the thing that you teach that you feel isn't quite landing. The thing that it's like, you're like, man, I, 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 I love this and I try this each year, but it never quite fits the way it's supposed to. And so for this teacher, it was the French Revolution. Interesting. And so we're, we're going back and forth and she's like, all right, well, you know, um, you know, I used to have them write like, uh, what did she say? Like campaign, like posters. And then I moved it to creating campaign commercials. And I was like, well, this is really great. Have you asked your kids how many of them have actually seen a campaign commercial? Because kids don't watch live TV anymore. I don't watch live. It's rare. You know, so I know if I'm not watching it, these kids definitely aren't watching it because I'm the generation who should be watching it. So she, she, you know, she went to her class. She came back. And she was like, yeah, none of them will actually watch live TV. And so we're like, all right, cool. Where are they getting their news from? She pulls them again. She's like, they all get it from social media. I'm like, well, why don't we do something with social media? and the French Revolution. So what we ended up doing in each class, we broke down the kids into like these different groups within the French Revolution, the, um, the monarchy, the, uh, you know, the Catholic church, the bourgeoisie, all of that. And um, each group, what they would do, we, and, I, and this is completely against their user policy, but I basically created a series of Instagram accounts for each group. And so within each group, they, like, we had one group that was the monarchy, one group that was the bourgeoisie. And so mm. there are two or three questions that the teacher threw out. And this was like a private Instagram thing. So it was only shared with the teacher and each group within the class, but other people couldn't really see what the kids were doing. So we just put it out there. We're like, all right, cool. You guys are going to answer this as the monarchy. You guys are, you guys are going to be the bourgeoisie. Um, you're going to be the clergy. That was the prompt. And then with the questions, what the kids did with it, though, this is the amazing part. Because I didn't set up any images. I didn't do anything. I just created the accounts and gave it to them. 
they started responding in the voice of the group that they were assigned to. And they found all of these memes that they would edit themselves to demonstrate their point. And they lit, and so it was like a live Twitter chat, but a live Instagram chat in class. And the kids came alive with that, but we didn't give them the instructions to do that. And so that is a consumption tool that the kids brought their humanity to. That's brilliant. I, I, I like, I really think this idea around humanizing technology. I mean, it's this interesting tension when we think about tech and like, you know, the robots are coming, that kind of narrative, right. you know, uh, and, you know, we don't have to be techno-optimists and think that, you know, they're gonna, it's going to also save the world. You know, we've had this conversation before as well, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's about also, like, the things that make us most human, our ability to empathize, to understand, to take perspective, to think critically, to connect. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those, those capabilities, I think, uh, can, can really be, I think, uh, laid bare through technology. Um, but only when we start with the learning first and then add the tool after. Exactly. And, and, and don't add the tool to substitute. I mean, the SAMA model, right, that, mm-hmm. that we talk about in education. Uh, and for those of those listeners that haven't heard of it, it's, it's SAMA, it's an acronym, Substitution, Augmentation, Modification, Redefinition. And it really talks about you know, four different ways that technology can shift the learning experience. And certainly when we look at, you know, the really profound innovations, they redefine, you know, the yeah. way that we get news, you know, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, the Ubers, the Teslas, you know, the Amazons, you know, the, the Fangs as they're called, right? These big companies now, these big tech companies that have really just com- created in just really novel and new experiences um, that have become more convenient. But sometimes, you know, the question is, have they become more human? Uh, Right, which, which I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm still really interested in. Um, and so even that, that was something I think that you and I dug into previously, the idea of when things become more convenient and there's less struggle, are you also removing the humanity of it? Because none yeah. of us understand how to do anything initially. I know that sounds like a really, like a, a <laughs> That's choice. All of us are more. We'll learn to walk, you know? <laughs> you know literally, yeah. literally, no one comes out of the womb running. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we literally have to learn to roll over first and then learn mm. to pull ourselves up and then learn how to balance and then learn how to walk. Yeah. And when we remove those steps, what are, we, what are we removing from the process? Because in doing that, um, you know, and I promise this won't be my last musical analogy, you can put four kids in a room, give four kids whatever. You can give them guitars, you can give them saxophones, you could give them recorders. The way that they're going to blow into that the first time is going to be symbolic of who they are as people. But that will be their starting point to learning that instrument. And better yet, how they express themselves with that instrument. Mm-hmm. And so when we're taking that away, and you do this all the time, you're really great at quoting authors and books. So I'm going to quote a book um, I can't remember the author's name, but it's The Inevitable, which is the book I'm always like, you've got to read this book. <laughs> Kevin Kelly. Um, yeah. Kevin Kelly, thank you. He has this line in his book saying that we will always sacrifice um, our privacy for convenience. Mm, interesting. And so I, I, 
I think in the context of the classroom, what we are beginning to sacrifice, and we do it as educators, and now it's trickling down to kids, we are sacrificing the privacy of, of, of the ability to mess up in private or public for the convenience of it just being done right. Whether that's spell check, whether that's the AI thing that's proofreading your emails for you, we're giving, we're giving up that process. And in giving that up, it is, it's great. We are quote unquote more productive. We get more busy work done, but does it prepare us to go into deep work if we don't know how to make mistakes? That's, that's great. Yeah, even to use the musical analogy again, the whole the whole <laughs> point around, um, you know, when someone is creating, you know, music is, it is actually a beautiful metaphor, but it's also quite literally uh, creation in action. Yeah. You know, you're, you are putting something out into the world. And of course, you know, jazz, uh, as I'm sure you would attest, has really evolved from the whole notion of kind of playful errors, you know, like... Mm -hmm. If you ever watch a, an amazing solo, like that solo is almost impossible to recreate because it's mm -hmm. it's so emergent as a property. Uh, and I think, you know, perhaps as human beings, it's when we're in those spaces where, the, you know, the, it's not a kind problem. It's not a simple, you know, Beethoven that we're trying to play. And even though, you know, it's never going to be the same anyway because of the different kind of tone and hit, you know, how, how, do, we, how do we think of learning as kind of creating a jazz tune you know what i mean like where here are the different tools and instruments um or here are the different you know scales and keys you know these are the different capabilities and you can mix them all together to create something that is truly unique yeah and so this idea for example of being a specialist and just focusing on one thing is another thing that we we often talk about yeah and so what would what would you say through your work there particularly around the the entrepreneurial side about the ability to kind of connect different ideas together that may seem not yet connected. Cause that seems to me to be a very human capability. In fact, probably the most human, like this idea of general intelligence as opposed to narrow intelligence. Right. AI is already smashing us in narrow intelligence, right? Yeah. It, it beat us decades ago at chess and at, you know, jeopardy. It's already yeah. be, it's beat us at Go, which is the yeah, most I was say Go. game, five yes. billion possibility. You know, so that that happened a, a few years ago. So you know, technology is taking over particular parts of the human experience. So how do we design our experiences, therefore, to focus on the things that are most human? And to to do that, we do need this idea of depth to be a yeah. design principle from the beginning, perhaps. What, what, what yeah. are you, what's your reflection on, on that kind of space? Well, it's interesting, you know, when you're talking about how this reflects in schools, that to me was, that to me is the learning experience. And so within um, public and, and a lot of charter spaces, you'll see a lot of top-down education. Someone is uh, at the main office or uh, whoever's in charge of math has decided this is what a seventh grader should know at this point of the year, mm. and this is the best way to teach it to them. That, and it's funny, you said it so eloquently where you were talking about the AI having beat us out in that process. That is, is it's really interesting, the idea of taking 
uh, a human perspective or even a human being and having them try to execute something in um, a coding or uh, or algorithm, algorithmic way. You know, the idea of like, all right, well, at this point, this is where you should be. And this is how you will say it. And I've, I've taught in those schools where it's sort of like, this is the script. We need you to say it with a little more of a smile. But this is what you're going to wow. say. And this is going to lead to the highest um, retention from the largest number of kids in the room. That is one learning experience. There isn't a lot of, in my opinion, humanity involved with that mm. there isn't a lot of of taking um what you're trying to relate to the kids because at the end of the day education it's information transfer ideally it is information transfer in the way that kids can take that and transfer it to other things mm. so they're, you're transferring the process as opposed to just the facts and so the idea of being able to create a space where you're like well hey this is what i'm thinking of this is how this kind of works how do you see this in your world? And it's not me telling you this is how you're going to learn it. It's me asking you a question that's not a yes or no question, kind of like yeah. a lot of the questions you ask on this podcast, and creating that opportunity for people to go deep because they have to make the connections between what they're hearing about, what they're learning about, and what they've seen. Yeah. That's the, the idea of the non-Googleable question uh, is, I think, a really yeah. powerful idea when we think about not just education, but any way that we contribute through business or civic life, you know, what are the, what are the deep questions? And this, this idea of depth is something I think, that, well, it's where we started. Right. Deep work, deep right. learning, uh, deep questions. Yeah. When, when you find a really powerful, deep question and you start to explore it, I think that's where the true fabric of humanity, you know, ability to be creative, uh, to make connections, to build things that hopefully make the world better. Um, Creates ownership. Ownership too. Skin in the game where you're like, no, this is the thing that I believe in. Where belief and faith comes from in education. The power behind that. Mm. That's the harder part. If you get kids to believe in what they're actually working on, you, you can just step back, answer yeah. questions occasionally. Sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to cut you off. No, that's, no, that's great. That. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's in terms of a trend, when we think about, you know, obviously the learning future, which is yeah. a premise of this, the idea of lifelong, life-wide and life-deep learning, which is the way that we articulate it. Um, so the, that brings in depth, it brings in breadth, and it brings in longevity, right? Which mm -hmm. are the, you know, three different components we can think about because the future of work is certainly a life of learning. You know, yeah. the idea of constant learning and learning and development teams being more and more important in organizations, for example, just like professional learning has always been important for educators. But, you know, it, things are too big to know, to use another good book title. You know, mm. they really are. So <laughs> how then um, how then do we become rather than the, the holder of knowledge, be the kind of learning activator or the learning guide, right? And, of course, through our work at the D School, the idea of being a designer is really important in that piece. Mm -hmm. uh, just as, obviously it's design and then it's also delivery. Right. Um, but the idea of how, how do we design experiences that don't create convenience necessarily, but by default create struggle that's productive. Yeah. A productive struggle. Yeah. And so I'd love you to take, talk us a bit through 
you know, your understanding of productive struggle, which is clearly linked to the idea of deep work. Yeah. Uh, because deep work, we create the container in which we can productively struggle. Do right. difficult things, try to master those difficult things, as Cal Newport would say. So Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to give you an example. This okay. summer, I worked on a project with our mutual friend, June. June Beha. She's amazing. Um, and she had started this program through her organization, the Beha Group, where she had created um, opportunities for students to go do internships. Um, through you know writing these grants and 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 acquiring a, a lot of money for this one school district she was working with specifically, awesome. and then COVID COVID hit. Mm -hmm. There were no they could the kids couldn't go and do internships, uh, just because all the all the basically businesses were shut down because nobody knew what was happening. This was all you know a couple months ago. So she and I you know we talked and we came up with uh, this project where I took a couple of her kids. And um, I said, all right, I will work with them for a couple of weeks. And then we're going to have this week-long camp where they're going to actually build out um, a, VR, um, a VR environment based upon a concept. I hadn't figured out the concept yet. Sure. But I, like, we're, you know, I'm going to work with them for two weeks beforehand. We'll talk about some design thinking pieces and we'll also build community, which we did a ton of. Um, and then I'll bring them into a slightly larger group and then the kids will work on creating something and they only have a week. And so all of these kids that, uh, that, I, was, that uh, I worked with this summer had never actually used VR before or used a VR headset or actually built something out. Wow. Um, and so we spent a lot of time sort of talking through it, doing these like really quick sprints where I was like, all right, you, here's the software, you've had time to play with it, you have 10 minutes to build X for me. And I would give them something completely unrealistic to build in the amount of time that they had to build it. Essentially, I'm, I'm creating these moments of failure for them. Nice. But everybody was failing together. <laughs> you know, um, and so part of that was deliberate because I wanted them to experience what it was like. And I kept harping on this. If you don't do the planning ahead of time, if you're trying to build the ship or build the plane while you're flying it, you're going to fail. This is what it feels like. And then as we went into that final week, we went through this whole storyboarding process. And this was the question that I, I uh, proposed to them. You have the opportunity through this experience to either sell me something or convince me of something. That's it. I didn't give them any other prompts. Uh, I, there was another teacher, the, the art teacher at uh, my school who I work with, uh, this woman, Liz Nebo, was brilliant. She, she taught the class with me. And essentially, we met with them on Zoom for two hours a day. And then we're like, all right, the rest of this is up to you. You have a partner. Mm -hmm. Schedule time with them. Each day, you have, to, you have to have one part of this done. And the first part was, what is your storyboard? What are the details? What do you need to make this happen? And the kids moved through this process and I was blown away with what they came up with. And so I'll add a little extra context. We, we partnered with the, the people from this organization called Future Tech Live, and, and they work with Comic-Con. So the kids' work was being featured in Comic-Con. Oh, so they had, cool. they had a little bit of pressure on them. They were like, all these <laughs> well, people are going to see what you do. It? It's authentic. This is yeah. real. Yeah. This is very real. You know, and then the people who work for the company who designed the software, they came in to give the kids a little bit of help and support as well. So then they felt ownership because like, well, this is the person who made this program and this person's helping me achieve my vision. Awesome. We had kids come up with uh, examples of COVID, examples of, of uh, how women 
or uh, feel in certain vulnerable situations in society, if they're walking home alone, uh, mental illness from the perspective of kids and also their parents. These were all their ideas. And all we did was create the framework mm-hmm. and initially create the space where they could fail within the group where everybody was failing, where they could ask questions. And the biggest takeaway, you would think, you know, because uh, June did a really great job of surveying the kids and meeting with them every week. Um, everything we've described, we're talking about VR, we're talking about Comic-Con, these kids all got to have headsets at home. What do you think was the thing that they enjoyed the most? Can you take a guess? Yeah, you are definitely a teacher. Quite cool. <laughs> I know, I'm like, I'm like <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, the idea of just creating something, maybe being able to point that they've done that, what was it? The struggle. <laughs> yeah, man. It was, the, it was literally the struggle because there were some things that we were working through with the program as far as like being able to, the kids had to share files online and upload it to their headsets directly. And that part, they were like, I did not think I would be able to do this. Uh-huh. And I was. We didn't, th- we didn't exactly know how it was going to work, but we found a way and we were actually pleased with what we came up with. So it wasn't the technology. It could have been, they could have just been drawing pictures. It was the process and it was the struggle and it was the faith that they gained from being able to overcome that, the humanity part of that. Mm-hmm. Because they, literally they're working with high level technology that a lot of schools aren't working with. But the humanity of like, man, I failed and I figured out the solution to this. That was the part that they loved. And I think that is how you bring this into school settings. You create those opportunities for failure. You create the opportunities for buy-in. You find the way to support them, and you allow them to um, you allow them to essentially believe in what they're doing, have faith, have pride, and have it represent where they are in that moment. Mm. They learned how to design. They learned how to create in VR. But that was, I mean, the, them being able to work through adversity and, and things that they weren't sure about in a world filled with convenience and busy work where spell check always exists, but it didn't exist for this. Yeah. Uh, that is a wonderful example, I think, of the idea of, of going deep. And, and it's, in some ways, you know, the product they created isn't the point. I think as you've outlined, it's the process they went through as a deeply yeah. human one and, and the, capabil- the human capabilities that they developed, you know, of resilience and confidence, uh, as well as some of the skills they developed, how to use this particular tool or tech or this, a new process, et cetera. Yeah. Quaker, that's, that's, it's ex- really exciting, I think, actually. And whenever I speak to you, I always feel kind of optimistic about the world. Um, Likewise. Despite Likewise. the challenges that we have. Uh, and the good news is you and I continue to connect and, and try to unpack these ideas as, as I'm sure we will. But what I'd like for you to do is just to leave us today with kind of a take-home message or something that you're considering. And maybe it relates to depth versus superficiality or surface learning or you know, the, the idea of kind of being mindful and, and designing for deep experiences. What, what is it that you would say through what you've been learning and the way you contribute to not just your school community, but far beyond that through your, your kind of other roles. What's the take home message you want to leave with us today? And this, I promise will be my last musical analogy because <laughs> we're almost done. <laughs> um, it's very appropriate. But I'm just going to own it. Um, yeah, do it. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So I'm going to say it and then I'm going to explain it. Constantly be detuning your guitar. I used to, I used to play music with this one guy. He was this amazing, amazing musician. Uh, and, you know, he went to conservatory. He's the type of dude you turn your back, you play a chord and you'd be like, Oh, it's a G minor seventh. Cause he, he would just, he, he heard and saw music in a way that I couldn't, um, in a way that a lot of people couldn't. His only challenge was that because he had this uh, way of hearing and listening to music, he could not write music unless he detuned his guitar because he couldn't turn off the logic of how the notes all work together. Like the math was so clear to him. And so the, the idea of, of creating deep work means that we need to constantly be looking for moments where we're lost and uncomfortable. And if we aren't doing that as educators, we don't recognize what that looks like for students. And so we need to constantly be pushing ourselves to do these things that we're uncomfortable with. I, I, did, I did a version of this a couple of years ago um, where I applied to be the producer and director for a 360 film um, for the UN. Wow. And I'd never directed anything and I'd never produced anything. And I kind of understood how 360 cameras worked. And somehow... Um, uh, maybe I offered to do it for the cheapest or whatever, but the UN was like, all right, cool. Here's $50,000. And wow. you're, you're going to go with the cameraman to Fiji and you're going to go make these, these, uh, these videos. And I was like, all right, great, cool. Now we actually have to do it. And there were so many moments of being lost in that process. And then the struggle I was talking about with the kids that I was able to work through and figure out, which gave me confidence to get lost again. How are we detuning our guitars? How are we taking a different route home? How are we putting ourselves in these in our own productive struggle scenarios so that we know how to how to author them or curate them for the kids that we're working with? Wow, Kwaku, thank you for sharing part of who you are, not just what you're doing, <laughs> but actually part of who you are and all those beautiful musical analogies. Uh, yes, sir. Throughout, I mean these. I think you've really illuminated some of the really big questions that we're all asking in education, but also beyond, you know, in society as well. How do we create that deep workspace and stay with the struggle? You know, be okay. Be okay with that that failure as long as we're failing forward. But yeah. th thank you very much, Kwaku, for spending time hanging out with us today on the Learning Future podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for constantly uh, allowing me to pick your brain. <laughs> and some of your brilliance. It's two-way learning. Always, always. Right. I'll see you very soon. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.